Mark Kantrowitz has written prolifically on criminal law, civil law, juvenile law, evidence, and mental health. He publishes a hotly anticipated monthly column titled Law and History for Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. From 1979 to 1985, he was an assistant district attorney in Suffolk County. In 1985, he started his own law practice, concentrating in civil and criminal litigation and acting as lead attorney on two dozen first-degree murder cases. Judge Kantrowitz served as justice on the juvenile court and then as an associate justice on the Massachusetts Appeals Court, where I had the honor of working as his intern and later as his clerk. Judge Kantrowitz also served on several Supreme Judicial Court committees. The book he'll be discussing today, Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal, is his fourth history book. Today, he will explore some of the most notorious legal cases in American history. Please, give, please join me in giving a warm welcome to my judge, Mark Kantrowitz. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Look at this crowd. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Hopefully, if you can't hear me out there, just, just raise your hand or take out a $5 bill. I respond to that much, uh, much better. You know, this is approximately my 40th talk on my, uh, on my book. And, and this was going to be my final talk. I have been speaking uh, all over the local area in Massachusetts area. And this was going to be like the Super Bowl, right? This is, you know, look, all these people. And uh, this is going to be the Super Bowl. And then, fortunately or unfortunately, people have kept asking me to speak. So uh, this is just like going to Broadway. And then I'm going to go back off Broadway uh, in, 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 in a few weeks. So uh, I, was a, I was an appellate court judge walking right across the street. And I was a there until uh, uh, a year ago, uh, August, and I was sitting as a judge on a Wednesday in August, and five days later, I was staying in a dormitory in my alma mater in Ohio, Ohio University, where I was a visiting professor teaching my book. So I really went from, uh, from one extreme to, uh, to, to another. And, and it reminded me of my Ohio days some 40 years ago, because this time my wife brought me there, much like my mother brought me there 45 years ago. And then she said, after moving me in, have a nice semester. I'll see you soon. So, uh, so it was a great experience. And among other things, I taught a history course based on my book. So, uh, and my students were much like many people here. They were 19, 20, and 21 years old. And, and, uh, and it was interesting because for them, what I was teaching was truly history. They had never heard of anyone. They had never heard of Al Capone. They had never heard of Marilyn Monroe. They had really heard, and when I was speaking, about different topics. It was like when my parents spoke about World War II. It was history, and what I was talking about was history for them. So uh, my book is about once famous, now totally forgotten cases. When, for, for most of the cases in the book, the biggest cases in America when they happened, and now, through the passage of time, totally forgotten. Much like, and I, I typically I ask this of my audience, what's the biggest criminal case in America in the last 20 years? Oh, that's what everybody says. Everybody says O.J. Simpson. And my response to that, 
is in 100 years, no one will know anything about the O.J. Simpson case. No one will know who O.J. Simpson was. No one will know about any of the facts of the case, notwithstanding the fact it was the biggest case in America when it happened. Now, how can I say that with such assurance? Because I look back at the biggest case in America about 100 years ago, Fatty Arbuckle, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And then I think about some members of this crowd, and this is why I like speaking uh, in, in venues like this, is that when I say Fatty Arbuckle, people remember the name at least. And, and for those who don't, I have a few of my students back there. I teach at Northeastern Law School and a few of my students. Gentlemen, because you showed up, you will get that A. So, <laughs> so I say, because Fatty Arbuckle, for, for, for those who don't, was the biggest comedian in America at the time. He and Charlie Chaplin, the biggest comedian in America. He famed, you know, the Keystone Cops, the pie in the face. In a time where people were making a few thousand dollars a year, he was making over a million. His car was so big, it had a bathroom in it. Now, this is a man who was on his way up. He had movies all over America and was making a lot of money. Yet, very few people know, not a lot of, some people in here remember Fatty Arbuckle, but very few people know about his criminal case. Right, does anybody know about his criminal case? Yeah, yeah, so. You like to read about crimes, that's why you have different, like, he was charged with the rape murder of a woman named Virginia Rapp, who changed her name to Virginia Rappé because it had a certain allure to it. She was 1980, voted the upcoming film ingenue or the next big movie star in, 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 in America in 1918. She makes a fateful decision, as does uh, Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty's working in Los Angeles, obviously, at the time. Long weekend coming up, Labor Day weekend. And he says, you know, I got to get out of town. I'm going to go up to San Francisco. He rents three-room suite up in San Francisco. And in one room, it's his room. In the middle room, it's the, uh, the party room. And in the last room, a couple of friends of his are staying there. And it's going to be a party. And it's going to be a party. You know, people talk about the good old days. Somehow people were, were more moral back then. People, one of the themes in my book is that people haven't changed, that people are the same today as they were 100 or even 200 years ago. They're as jealous, they're as generous, they're as funny, they're as smart, they're as petty, they're as, they're as wonderful today and back then. People don't change, and my book illustrates this. So Fatty goes to the party, and the alcohol is flowing, the cocaine is flowing. Oh my God, cocaine used 100 years ago. Cocaine was more prevalent, arguably, in certain sections in America 100 years ago than it is today. And oh my God, what did we have 100 years ago? We had prohibition, no liquor. Liquor consumption was never higher than during prohibition. It was flowing during the Fatty Arbuckle era. So Fatty Arbuckle says he's going to have a party. People are coming in and out of the party. They're doing different things, and they're coming in. And then Virginia Rapp uh, comes in. When Fatty sees her, he's a little disconcerted. 
because he knows of her, genera- of, of her uh, reputation, which is not a good reputation. She's known as a party girl. She's known as a woman who, when she drank too much, what did she do when she drank too much? Maybe got sick? No. She ripped her clothes off, right? Now, this is a rumor, perhaps. In my research, I came up this tale about Virginia Rapp or Rappe. Now, of course, since it was written in the newspapers 100 years ago, it obviously had to be true, right? <laughs> Just like today, you read anything in the press, it's got to be true because it's written in the press. The press reported that she was so promiscuous and unfortunately she contracted a venereal disease. She had sexual relations with so many men in her movie studio, they had to shut down the movie studio for three weeks. Okay, now, I don't know whether that story is true. I use it as an illustration of that's what it was reported back then. Candidly, I have my doubts, but she was a very, clearly, a very promiscuous uh, young lady at the time. She was also with a woman, um, Moore Delmont, I think her name was, who was known as a professional witness. So say you're getting uh, divorced from your husband. And back, this thing just came out of my ear. I knew it was going to come out of my ear. I apologize to the sound people up up here. Moore Delmont was a, a professional witness. So back then, if you wanted to get a divorce, I'm just going to stick this here. If you wanted to get a divorce uh, and, you know, they didn't have irreconcilable differences. So you, one of the ways you can get a divorce is adultery. But, oh, my God, how were you going to prove adultery? You know how you prove it? You call Maud. She was a professional witness. Maud would come down and testify for the right price. Anything you wanted her to testify to, she would testify to, right? The good old days. So Maud comes in. So... Thaddeus goes to his room because he wants to go out and run an errand. He's in his room getting ready to run an errand when Virginia, who's highly intoxicated at, the, at, this, at, at this point, very, very, very highly, she's thrown up on herself, she's somewhat delirious. So Fatty guides her to his bed and seeing how hot she was, goes to and gets some water and goes over and sprinkles some water on this woman who's burning up with fever, okay? Maud now walks into the room, and Virginia somewhat hysterically says, Maudie, look what he, pointing to Roscoe, did to me. And that would land, Maud, uh, Virginia now gets sick and sicker and sicker. Fatty says she needs a doctor, and Fatty leaves to run his errand. She gets sicker and sicker. She gets some medical help. A doctor, Rumsfeld, the doctor of the stars, comes in to treat her. He's treating her, but she's getting sicker and sicker. The nurse says perhaps she should go to the hospital. Dr. Rumsfeld says, no, she doesn't have to go to the hospital. When they finally take her to the hospital, she dies. So I gave you that scenario. Out of that scenario, Fatty Arbuckle is charged with the rape murder of Virginia Rappe. And this act of getting the water and sprinkling it was reported by the press. This became a champagne bottle. And it was reported by some members of the press that it was inserted into the unconscious victim and she died from that act. Totally made up. 
totally fabricated, totally made up to sell newspapers. Okay? Times of you know, the good old days, but people were just more honest back then, right? So Fatty now goes to trial. Now, what happens to Fatty? Every one of his movies is pulled. Right? He is now a person non gratis. We do not want Fatty Arbuckle. And he goes from the king to here. They go to trial. The first trial, one of the jurors, before trial, says, I don't care what the evidence is, he's guilty. That's when they really knew how to pick an impartial jury, right? So they hear the evidence. The jury comes back 10 to 2, 10 to two not guilty to guilty. One of the jurors is that woman who said, I don't care what the evidence is, he's guilty. She votes him guilty. 10 to 2, it's a hung jury. A do-over. Now, his attorneys, who were paid a lot of money, the second trial said, you know, we did such a good job, we know what to do, and they candidly mail it in for the second trial. They don't put Fatty on the stand, they don't do a particularly good job. The second trial comes back 10 to 2 for guilty. Okay? Now, while that jury is deliberating, now that story had been on the front page the front page, excuse me, the front page of the newspaper, right? You pick up the paper, that's Fatty Arbuckle, latest on the Fatty Arbuckle case. Something happened on February 1st, 1922 to knock that story from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. And the top of the page on February 2nd read, William Desmond Taylor found murdered. Now, once again, people say, Who's William Desmond Taylor? Let me put it into perspective today. Steven Spielberg found murdered. Martin Scorsese found murdered. How big of a story would that be? The biggest story in America. That's how big the William Desmond Taylor story was. He was America's foremost director in that era. It's a fascinating story. It's unsolved for those who like mystery, who like to see who done it. Four books have been written about William Desmond Taylor, and all four books come to a different conclusion as to who murdered William Desmond Taylor. The story is so big that in the 1980s, a professor out in Arizona, Bruce Long, said, I really like this. I'm going to start putting it onto the com on my computer and the internet. If you go today, just Taylorology. If you plug Taylorology in there, a million-page document will come up because it really worked. What he did, he almost turned it into a magazine because William Desmond Taylor had a fabulous, fabulous, interesting uh, uh, life. And just to give you a little tidbit, I'm not going to talk about the case much. He was married pretty wealthy. He's married to a woman. They have a young child. They're in New York City. He's going to go to the races out in the eastern part of Long Island. He goes to the races in the eastern part of Long Island, and that's the last we see of William Desmond Taylor. He had a different name back then. Ten years later, his wife and his now 12-year-old daughter go to a movie to see a movie, Captain Alvarez, and they're watching the movie. And then all of a sudden, Mrs. Taylor, or what her name was at, at the time, says, oh, my God, there's your father. <laughs> William Desmond Taylor had 
gone to Hollywood eventually, made a bunch of stops, a bunch of stops along the way, and became a, uh, became a, a movie actor. Then he became a, uh, he went behind the scene and became a, uh, a, a, a director. The, bigger, the, the point of the story, it's, he was the biggest director in America when he was murdered. There's a cast of thousands. In fact, the book, the first book written, written is A Cast of Killers. It's a great story. If you like crime stories, it's a great story. And good luck figuring out who did it, okay? But I digress. Let's get back to Fatty. So Fatty Arbuckle now, uh, he's tried trial number two. It's 10 to 2 for conviction. Once again, a hung jury. We have to do it over again. So do over. Trial number three. His lawyers say, we got to do a good job now. They do a good job. The jury goes out to deliberate. And how long is the jury out for? How long is the jury out for? Yell out a number. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> There's no wrong. You can say anything you want. Two hours is good. Five minutes is very good. Double it. Ten minutes. Oh and you know why it was ten minutes? Because while they were voting not guilty, they were writing a letter to the judge. So when the judge got the jury slip, slip saying not guilty, he also got a letter from the jury. And the jury said, not only is Fatty Arbuckle not guilty, he's innocent of all the charges. <laughs> and we hope that this will not negatively affect his career. Right? <laughs> Right. What happened? It devastated his career. Notwithstanding what the jury said, his career was absolutely devastated. He could not find any work anywhere. He was blacklisted. He was black, uh, blackballed. He had a good friend, Buster Keaton. Remember Buster Keaton? A good friend of his. And Buster Keaton said, you know, if you're right, you know, you're a great writer, Fatty. Why don't you write some stories? And if you write some stories, Put a different name on it and I'll sell it for you, which is what he did. So much like the blacklisted in the 1950s, he just wrote uh, under a different name. And the name he used was William B. Good. Will be good. Right now is the name. So after about a dozen, 14 years, Warner Brothers calls a man and says to him, you know, Fatty, you're a great, great actor. You have a beautiful singing voice. You're very, very funny. You're a great dancer. You were clearly not guilty of, of what you were charged with. And you have suffered long enough. We're going to sign you to a new contract. So he signs a contract that afternoon. He says, this is the happiest day of my life. And that evening, he died in his sleep. So, which is really uh, a, 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 a sad story. So, uh, you know, once again, I. This is just one of 30 stories, and I deal with stories from Hollywood. I, still, I deal with uh, stories from uh, Boston. Some of the Boston stories took place right up the street, right at, uh, right, right at Harvard. So uh, once again, I typically ask my audience, do you want me to tell you about a local story, or do you want me to tell you about Hollywood and glimmer and famous people? I, I, I don't care, candidly. Any... any well, oh my God, I was, I was hit with that, yes. Stanford White? That's a great story, and I never talk about that story. And I don't know why. I'll tell you afterwards why I don't talk about that story. But this is the, uh, the woman in the red velvet swing. It's this young lady here who is 16. And once again, 
Stanford Y, America's foremost architect buildings in, in, in around here uh, were, were designed by Stanford White. And Stanford White uh, liked uh, to party, and this was the Gilded Age. And once again, if you think things are a little you know, was skewed today between the wealthy and the poor back then in the Gilded Age. It was really, really, really very, 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 uh, very, uh, very wide. Let me just go back. Virginia Rapp probably died of a botched abortion performed by Dr. Remsfeld. That's why he never wanted to get her any medical uh, assistance. Also, after she died, he performed an unauthorized autopsy on her, destroying the evidence I would have connected uh, uh, him to any type of unlawful abortion. It was clear she had a number of abortions, and, and, and he was the doctor to the star. So that's probably, uh, that's probably what her cause, of, uh, her cause of death was. But let me talk about, uh, how about, uh, not Lana Turner, how about Jean Harlow? Yes. Remember Jean Harlow, the blonde bombshell? Beautiful woman, funny woman, right? She was in Dinner at Eight, if you ever see that uh, wonderful mar uh, movie. She's 21 years old, and she meets the number three guy at MGM. So you had, uh, you had uh, Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, then you had Irving Thalberg. Remember, if you watch the Academy Awards every few years, someone wins the Irving Thalberg Award for Excellence in Movies. And then you had Paul Byrne. So Paul Byrne is the number three guy at MGM, right? He's 42 years old. Uh, Jean Harlow is 21. Uh, Paul comes from New York originally, was wanted to be an actor, decides to go out to California, acted, and then he went behind the scene and became a, uh, a, a director. So he's a very talented uh, fellow at 42. He meets Jean, and they fall in love. Oh, so you don't have to? Okay, I apologize. I apologize. I will stay in front here. I will stay. I apologize to you. So, Jean is 21, meets Paul. They fall in love and they get married. They get married July 4th, okay, of, of uh, uh, July, July 4th weekend. And by Labor Day, a lot of things go on in Labor Day in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Hollywood. Labor Day weekend, Paul Byrne is found dead in his place. So immediately summons to the scene. Now, if you find a dead body, who are you going to call? Don't say Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? <laughs> who are you going to call? You're going to call the police. Who gets called back then? Louis B. Mayer, Irving Thalberg, Hendry, who's the head of security, a former police chief in Los Angeles. MGM is smart. Let's get the police chief as he retires. We'll name him the chief of uh, security. And a guy named Strickland, the fixer. I forgot his first name. Walter. Walter, the fixer Strickland. I bet he took a lot of, a lot of secrets to, to his grave. So they come to the death scene. The four of them are looking at the dead body of their number three man, right? who probably the day before they were in Mayer's office talking about different projects. And Louis May is looking at the number three guys and says, oh my God, we can't have a murder. Okay, once again, proving another theme in my book, how people don't change, right? People don't change because she was the golden goose. She was the one that made an MGM a million dollars and MGM, the executives say, 
And the first thing their inclination is, they're going to cover up the murder. We can't have a murder. So they make it look like it was a suicide. A day later, the publicity department goes into high gear as to give an explanation for the suicide. And you know what the explanation for the suicide was? Is that Paul Byrne could not sexually satisfy his beautiful wife. And they even went so far as to talk about his small male organ. The good old days, right? The good old days. So just to show you how times don't change, Heath Ledger, remember the, the actor Heath Ledger from 10 or 15 years ago? A masseuse goes in uh, to see him, and he's dead. Who does she call? Does she call the police? She calls the Olsen twins, right? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Because she had some type of relation to the Olsen twins. They call her, and they, she apparently says, we have a slight problem here. Uh, he's dead, and presumably the Olsen twins said the right thing, call the police, which was done. But it just shows that the inclination, even you know, 60, 80, 90 years later, was to somehow protect, you know, you know, powerful people or, 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 or uh, whomever. So, uh, so it's declared a suicide, and that's the way the story stood forever, until, well, forever, until the 1960s. When in the 1960s, Playboy magazine hires Ben Hecht, remember? Ben Heck, the famous screenwriter, and they hired Ben Heck to write for Playboy magazine a Hollywood Babylon type of story. And I have that uh, article, so obviously I read Playboy for its articles. <laughs> so I got that article, and it's a lengthy article about Hollywood Babylon. And in the middle of the article, it's just two paragraphs, and it says, and then it, there's the Paul Byrne case. Everybody knows Paul was murdered. Like, on the inside, everybody knew Paul Byrne had been murdered, notwithstanding what the official bottom line was. So as a result of that story, they reopened the investigation, but now it's 30 years later, and 30 years have passed, and, and you know, they can't really gather any type of uh, evidence that people are dead, and, and it's to this day, it's a suicide. In fact, drumroll, I'm going to tell you, Dorothy Millette, was probably the killer. Dorothy Millette was his, either his wife or his girlfriend in New York. She had mental health problems. He paid for her to stay in a sanitarium. He supported her for the, for, you know, his, the rest of his life and the rest of her life. She was an actress too at one point and she always wanted to come out to Hollywood. Paul always said, don't come out to Hollywood. In fact, she did come out to Hollywood on that fateful night. And she's probably the one who, mur who, who murdered him on that. I think it was a Friday. On Sunday, she committed suicide, so, which is interesting. They were going to bury her in a pauper's grave until somebody came forward to pay for the funeral expenses and the, and, and, and the uh, gravestone. And that someone was Jean Harlow, so, you know, which is kind of you know, an interesting, let's go uh, full circle. Let me tell you about uh, the 1950s, a fellow with a... Uh, a mother fixation. 
Now, this is a mother fixation to end all mother fixations. And I'll throw out his name, and once again, I am betting that nine... When I spoke last week, when I mentioned the name, somebody raised his hand and actually said, I know him. It's the first time it's happened. Ed Gein. So anybody know Ed? You know Ed Gein. Very good. You know Ed Gein? No? Okay, you don't know Ed Gein. So. That's exactly right. I'm from Wisconsin. When I, when I was teaching last year and at Northeast and in the law school, I happened to digress and tell about the story. And when I said to do anybody know Ed Gein, two women who were from Wisconsin knew about Ed Gein because Ed Gein was from Wisconsin. Very good. Now, Ed Gein, he had a mother from hell. The mother thought all men were filthy scum. They're dirty, they're smelly, they want one thing, they're up to no good. That was, his, that was her view on men. Her view on women was all women are no good. They put, <laughs> they, they put powder on their face, they put lipstick, they, they, they try to seduce men. All women are no good. So this woman got married to this uh, poor fellow and it was clear, she, she was really a very unpleasant person, and the only reason you would ever have sex was to procreate, and the only type of male, uh, of the only type of baby who was permissible in her world was a female. Oh my God, she gets pregnant, and the first baby is Henry. That's not good enough, I'm gonna try it once more. The second baby is Ed. Little Ed Gein is now the youngest child. The father, meanwhile, takes the easy way out, he dies. <laughs> Undoubtedly going to a place far superior to where he was. Okay, so Henry then dies also under somewhat similar uh, circumstances. Ed was a very kind of odd guy. He had a droopy eye. He was just kind of the village nitwit. His, 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 his uh, mother buys a farm in the middle of nowhere. This is when the father and the other son were alive. Because to stay six miles away from downtown, so he's not going to be corrupted by all those people in downtown. So this is the house in which uh, Ed, 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 Ed grew, grew, grew. So the mother then, uh, at, at some point, dies. Ed is crying. He cannot believe his mother is dead. Now, he's old. He's in his 30s and 40s. He cannot believe his mother is dead. Now, Ed, notwithstanding is a village idiot, was a nice type of village idiot. So you needed some help on your farm. What were you to do? You call Ed. Ed, can you come down and help with the tractor? Sure. Ed, can you come down and help with some, put some posts in? Sure, I'll be happy to. Ed, whatever you, whatever you wanted to do, Ed would very, you know, in his goofy little say, sure, I'll help you. So he was a village idiot, but he was kind of like. Now, this is a poor area, Plainfield, uh, Wisconsin. Very poor uh, area. And it was a little nondescript bar, bar. And it was a ramshack, a little bar concrete walls, and Mary Hogan, who resembled somewhat Augusta Gein, an unattractive woman, she weighed about 200, uh, 200 pounds. Somebody goes to the uh, saloon one day, and Mary Hogan is not there. And not only is she not there, but there are drag marks, blood, leading to the door. So obviously something bad has happened to Mary Hogan. They can't solve it, which is interesting, because you figure someone would come into the bar and see something. Nobody sees anything. A year goes by. Two years go by. What happened to Mary Hogan? We don't know. And then in November, it's deer hunting season. This is 
the Super Bowl for the community. For two day, for uh, nine days, they can go out deer hunting. So everybody's going to go out deer hunting on that Saturday. On that Friday before, Ed Dean comes into town. He goes to Warren, Bernice Warren's store, general store, and says, do you have any kerosene? I need some kerosene. She said, not today. Come back tomorrow. Ed said, very good. Thank you very much. Tomorrow comes. Ed doesn't go on the deer hunt. The entire town goes on the deer hunt. That late afternoon, early evening, everybody comes back from the deer hunt. They all gather at the local filling station to trade stories. Oh, the one that got away. Oh, the one that I bagged. To do a little, uh, you know, male bonding and, 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 and talking about the deer that they did and did not catch. Someone says to the uh, Mrs. Warren's son, geez, how come the store is closed? How come your mom's store is closed? And he says, store is closed. It shouldn't be closed. So he goes running over there. Lo and behold, the store is closed. Where is Bernice Wharton? Then someone says, you know, Ed Dean said he was going to come in. Maybe he knows something about the case. Let's go talk to Ed. So they go driving up to uh, a local farm where they know Ed occasionally had a hot meal and might be there. So they go in, they, speak, and they see Ed there, and then Ed says something no criminal defense attorney ever wants to hear. The police walk in, and Ed looks at him and says, this isn't about Bernice Warren, is it? <laughs> so uh, that's a bad way to start off uh, a, a case. They say, yes, it is. They talk to him for a while, and then, then they head up to the uh, Gein farm, in which he's living by himself. The farm has not changed much. There's no electricity. There's no indoor plumbing. It's full of garbage. His mother kept it immaculate, but when Ed was, started living there by himself, it was, it, was, it, it was garbage all over the place. So imagine, if you will, if you made a movie, you wouldn't have to change anything. It's a dark November evening, no moon. The wind is blowing. It's cold. The police, with those little police flashlights that never light up anything, they open up the front of the uh, area, which is the front kitchen. Garbage all over. The two officers are stomping over the garbage. They're looking around. And then one of the cops bumps up against something, and it gives way. So the police officer shines his light and says, oh, my God, there's a gutted deer. But that's what it looked. It was hanging by its heels, and it was gutted, and it was, in the police officer's mind, a gutted deer. He shined the light a little more closely. We have just found Bernice Warden, right? A headless Bernice Warden. They go into his bedroom. On the bedposts are the head of Mary Hogan and the head of Bernice Warden. They go over and there's a little box of female body parts here. There's a little box of female body parts here. On the shade, it's the, the, the pull-down thing is made up of female body parts. And then the creme de la creme, the female body part outfit, which Ed had constructed, that he would step into. So it was legs. It was, it was just a regular armor of, 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 uh, of a f sewed up female body parts. In the 50s, this became the, a big, big story in America. Once again, Life Magazine did a big, uh, uh, big spread on this. I have that Life Magazine also. A, big, a huge spread. It must be 10, 12, 14 pages long. A big spread. A local author, Robert Block, says, I'm going to write about this case, but I'm going to fictionalize it. And instead of Ed Dean, let me say, I call him Norman Bates. 
and I'll name my book Psycho. And that became, and then Alfred Hitchcock bought the rights to the book, and that is, Ed Gein is the real Norman Bates, okay? And let me say, if you've seen the movie, I'm confident everybody in this place, in this auditorium has probably seen it. The real Ed Gein was a lot stranger than, than, than Norman Bates. The house was total ramshackle except one room, which was immaculate, and that was his mother's bedroom. So uh, Ed was really a, a, a very strange, uh, a very strange person. Uh, I see my, uh, unfortunately, my time is up. Oh, 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 I'm going to take questions. They say, make sure you leave time for questions. I'll take time for, uh, for questions. But I, I do have five minutes. Let me tell you a local story, and I'll try to tell it very quickly. Because they said, you can't speak more than 45 minutes because we need questions, so I'll speak very, very quick. Okay. Uh, Bathsheba Spooner, once again, truth is stranger than fiction. Bathsheba Spooner lives in the western part of the state. Bathsheba Spooner's mother is Bathsheba born. She had a very, very famous father, very, very famous mother. The mother grew up on Cape Cod, the Bourne Bridge the town of Bourne, so this is who we're talking about. So Bathsheba Spooner, the daughter of Bathsheba uh, uh, Bourne, she gets married to, uh, to uh, Joshua Spooner. They are in a loveless marriage. They have three children. They had four, one died. They have three children. She is in a loveless marriage. Her father would have been the president of the United States. He was a general in the French and Indian War. He was a state, he was a state rep. He was uh, the uh, presiding judge in Worcester Superior Court. He was six feet tall, red hair, a vegetarian, a man ahead of his time, a very charismatic person, but on the wrong side of history. He was a loyalist in the time of the American Revolution. So he leaves uh, America. His daughter is left behind. Meanwhile, a fellow is from another part of uh, Massachusetts, uh, Ezra Ross. He comes from a family of like 16 kids, nine of whom have fought, th through, have fought for America. In the French and Indian Wars, one of his brothers fought under Timothy Ruggles, Bathsheba's father. So he's, uh, 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 so the young Ezra at 14 wanted to join the army as his brothers did. They said, no, you're too young, you can't do it, you can't do it. He turns 15, says, let me join, let me join. So finally at 15 and a half, they say, okay, you can join. He goes in, he fights for a year, and then he gets uh, released from the military because his, his, his period of service was up. Now, when I was in the Army and when I was released, they said to me, Mark, where do you want to go? I told them, they gave me a ticket, and they put me there. Back then, when you got released from the Army, it was, thank you very much, goodbye, and good luck. So he's 200 miles away from home. He lived in like the Long Meadow, one, western part of the state. He's about 200 miles away from home. It's the winter. He's sick. He's young. He's only about 16 years old. So he is making his way 200 miles across the cold, wintry uh, 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 northeast in the North Plains. He finally sees the door. Once again, in the movies, you can, you, when he knocks on the door, help me. I need help. And who answers the door? Bathsheba Spooner. And she takes him in, and she gives him all sorts of help, okay? And we know where this is going. And before you know it, they're having an affair. And before you know it, 
Sadly, it's happening today. I remember the smart case from 15 years ago in New Hampshire. Back then, it's, I love you, I love you, I want you, what are we going to do? Let's get rid of your husband, okay? So they plot to murder the husband. This is the first capital case in America under the new government. So um, uh, Sheba says, I'm going to uh, murder my husband. She looks out her window. She sees two stragglers, two deserters from the British Army. Once again, what would you do if you saw two members of the enemy? You might call the authorities. What does she do? She says, guys, come on. She gets her servant. Guys, come on in. She gives them some wine. She gives them some food on this cold day. And, it's, uh, and they say, oh, you've been so nice uh, to me. What can we do for you? How about murdering my husband? <laughs> so, uh, so these two guys and Ezra and, and her plot to murder her husband, March 1st, like I think it's 1778. He comes home. He was kind of a mean drunk. He's drunk. He's waddling home. And, 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 and the two British soldiers set upon him and kill him. Now, this is a murder orchestrated by Larry, Moe, and Curley. This is the Larry, Moe, and Curley way to murder someone. They murdered him. And to dis first, they strip the body of its valuables, including some very unique, like, belt, um, uh, shoe buckles. And then they dump him in the family well. As if the next morning, when someone went to get water from the family well, they wouldn't say, oh, my God, I would love to get water, but Mr. Spooner is in the well. So... They immediately head off to the Worcester area with their newfound game. What do they do? They go to a tavern. They start drinking. They start paying with it with the very unique property they had just stolen. So once again, Andy and Barney from Mayberry, even they can solve the case. So they solve the case, and all four of them are, uh, are all arrested. And that's the first capital case the four. All four are hanged. Now, let me give you all, I just have a minute to go. Let me give you, this is a fly in the ointment. She was pregnant, and she was pregnant by Ezra's baby. And if the law, the British common law at the time was, if you're pregnant, and if the fetus has quickened, moved, you cannot be put to death. Okay, you cannot be executed. We'll wait until the baby is born, then we'll execute you. Okay, that's, uh, so, but in... America at the time, there was a real move underfoot to get her executed as quickly as possible because the fear was, given her background, given this, at the time, it's bad, 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 but over time it was thought she would become a more sympathetic figure. She came from a well-to-do family. She's obviously a bright type of woman, and her husband was uh, a, a brute of a man, and the people responsible for the actual killing were put to death. So there was a, a, a feeling that we have to get this over with as quickly as possible. So we'll convene a medical panel to examine her to see whether the fetus is quickened. They examine her, and they come back, and they say the fetus is not quickened. Now, the person calling all the shots now is the temporary, you know, governor, if you will, of, of the local area, who happens to be the stepbrother of Joshua Spooner. <laughs> so no conflict of interest, right? No conflict of interest at all. So he obviously has an agenda. So she's uh, put to death, and once again, if you do this in a movie, people would not believe it. When she's letting up the scaffold, the sky, the sky's darkened, thunder, lightning, and rain for just a short time, and then it clears off, and then she, uh, she's, she's executed. 2,500 people live in the town. Guess how many people came to the execution? 2,500 people, 5,000. 
It was the Super Bowl, right? They were selling souvenirs, they were selling cider, they were selling everything. Come for a good time, right? They, they cut off part of the scaffold, have a souvenir for just a pencil, whatever, for, forever it was. In fact, after she was put to death, they did an autopsy on her. She was five months pregnant. Clearly, the fetus had quickened, quickened. So once again, in keeping with the theme of my book, the more things change, the more they remain the same. A powerful organization wanted to get a result. They cooked the books to get the result they wanted, and that's precisely what happened. And I have some other, uh, other uh, demonstrations of that. My time is up. Listen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.